0: It's showtime. Don't say it. Please don't say it. No, I have to say it, Mitch. Showtime. Showtime. It's showtime, everybody. Showtime. Welcome back to the Showtime Movie Podcast. I'm your host, Show, as always. Thank you very much for listening, everyone. I always, uh, you know, I, I know I say the same thing at the beginning of every episode. Thank you for listening follow along at this place, but truly, this is a hobby for me, um, and I really enjoy discussing movies with you all, uh, you know, it's a relatively small audience, but you guys are great, always leave kind comments and interact with me on Twitter, so uh, appreciate it, as always, I have some good news to announce, I did actually, impressively enough, I think, I know this sounds like I'm really patting myself on the back, but this never happened to me before, so I feel like it's warranted, <laughs> At least a little bit, right? I got my TIF accreditation. I got approved for TIF as a member of the media. And usually, okay. So I've mentioned this before. I work for a radio station, and uh, usually my bosses, who are are pretty good bosses, right, they're kind enough to write me a letter of recommendations, right, like uh, letters of recommendation, I should say. It's the had the plural to the other word. Show, come on, you idiot! Uh, But they they usually help me out a little bit, and I do some work on the side for um, for some of the other radio stations, like, in our little media network, I should say. I work for an AM radio station, and some of the FM, like, music stations do, like, film reviews. I help them out from the time to time, right? It's, it's just some fun stuff, right? But, uh, ultimately speaking, I work for a sports talk radio station, so it's not like they really need movie reviews. Unless it's for a sports movie, they don't really need movie reviews, right? I think one year, I went to go see uh, the, the, the film, um, what was it called? Oh, The Carter Effect, The Carter Effect, because it was about Vince Carter and his effect, it was a documentary, and uh, his, like, his effect on Canadian basketball players and how, like, a lot of young basketball players today, Canadian or otherwise, really, got into basketball because of Air Canada, quote-unquote, right? Air Carter, Vince Carter, because of his antics for the Toronto Raptors and, like, dunking all over the place. Anyway, so, movies like that, they usually, like, support me in, but uh they give me the boost anyways because you know how else am i supposed to get in there right And they know i love movies but uh, this year it's uh got in on the merits of this podcast which is kind of cool so when i go and i pick up my accreditation it'll say on the on the uh on the pass it's showtime which is kind of cool right so who would have thought so uh honestly this wouldn't exist without you guys because when you apply for accreditation and you 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 um cite a podcast they ask you how many downloads it gets, like a month, I think like per episode and also like a month or something like that. And I will say the, the audience for the podcast has grown a little bit, like not a lot, right, certainly. But I mean, I've been doing this for essentially for four years now and it has grown. So um, if you're one of the people who, who have joined along the way or if you've been listening the entire time and you somehow managed to stick out my inane ramblings at times about any movie that exists Honestly, from the bottom of my heart, I thank you because without your clicks, your downloads, I would not have gotten an accreditation to TIFF this year. So, uh, hopefully, uh, you know, come come September, September 9th to 18th, 2021, is uh, the TIFF Festival this year. So, I'm going to cover as many movies as humanly possible. It might be a, a busy like nine to 10 days because by then I will be married. Um, I will be also doing the Blue Jays post-game show on the Sportsnet network, right? So, you know, keeping the wife happy, doing my actual job for which I get paid, and then uh, I'll have to squeeze in the movies sometime. But luckily they they, they have a lot of these movies during the day, and the wife works during the day, so uh, I'll let her go to work and I'll go see movies, right? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, but uh, thank you again, thank you guys so much. It's it's, it's really great stuff. But uh, for today's episode, um, we're not going to talk about Tiff. We're going to talk about three movies: Gunpowder Milkshake, Jungle Cruise, and The Green Knight. And they are very different films, starring very different actors. Although, yeah, you know what? I was going to say I would. I almost said I would watch a movie with Karen Gillan and The Rock. And then I was like, oh, I have watched one of those movies. It's called Jumanji. <laughs> <laughs> oh well what are you gonna do right but either way gunpowder milkshake on netflix jungle cruise which did come out in theaters but i did not see it in theaters i saw it on, on disney plus and i did go see the green knight in theaters as well so why don't we get started on the reviews You guys are tired of hearing me uh, gush about tiff let's get to the first one karen gillen's uh latest adventure for netflix gunpowder milkshake You know, when I saw the trailer for Gunpowder Milkshake the very first time, I kind of thought it was, and maybe we talked about this on the podcast, but I kind of thought it was going to be kind of like a John Wick light, right? Maybe like a, maybe similar-ish to Atomic Blonde, right? And it's unfortunate to say that it's almost nothing like either of those movies. Like, I think you watch Atomic Blonde, you think to yourself, okay, I can see why this is like John Wick, but like it, Gunpowder Milkshake was essentially an amalgamation of a whole bunch of better movies, right? Like it had its moments, certainly, and it was pretty at times, and it had a really large cast of really interesting actors, but at the same time, it never really felt like at any point that came together. You know what I mean? Like, I, and I think that was the biggest shame about this movie because. Karen Gillan, right? Lena Headey, Michelle Yeoh, Angela Bassett, Carla Gugino, and... Yeah, and, and Paul Giamatti as well, but he had such a bit role. It's almost like he wasn't in the movie. He was—I feel like he was really wasted. And I like Paul Giamatti, I gotta say, but he was like—I think he was in what like three scenes in this movie. In one of those scenes, he was silent, so let's not count him, right? But the other those women I mentioned—they were all—they're all fantastic actors, generally speaking, or at the very least, maybe uh, maybe better way of saying it is I like them. And the only reason I say that instead of sticking by saying they're all fantastic actors is because Karen Gillan, I. I was thinking about this after the movie. I'm not sure she is a fantastic actor, right? Because admittedly, I've never seen Doctor Who, and I don't plan on watching it because, I mean, it's not a movie, right? But uh, and I I don't know. Doctor Who doesn't really scratch any particular itches I have. But uh, from all accounts, she's very good in Doctor Who. But, you know, you look at some of the more, uh, I don't know, not coveted, more recognizable roles that Karen Gillan has had over her career And I think the two you'd remember her from most certainly is Nebula in the, well, initially Guardians of the Galaxy, but just generally speaking Marvel movies. And I would probably say the Jumanji franchise, like the new Jumanji movies with like The Rock and Kevin Hart and so on, right? Jack Black, right? And I I have no real issue with Karen Gillan in either of those films. And in fact, I think she does a really good job as Nebula. Uh, she kind of exudes the menace. And, you know, part of it is underscored by the fact that Nebula looks cool and looks badass. And there's a relationship with Gamora and blah, 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 right? Like, you, like, you know the reasons why you like Nebula. And even though I would say Jumanji is more of a comedy than an action movie, it's like an adventure movie, I suppose. She just still says some pretty interesting stuff in those films. She's all right, right? In this movie, I kind of feel like she... I don't know if it's she was phoning it in or if like I said I'm just realizing she's not that great at acting but it kind of felt like she was just doing the nebula thing again but without the context of nebula it just came across as wooden almost right and I think the other issue I had with her in the lead role of this film is that Karen Gillan without the nebula prosthetics and makeup and so on doesn't really like she's not really an actor who exudes menace or maybe a better way of putting it is physicality she doesn't really exude physicality right by comparison's sake let's talk about the other four actors in this film who have a significant amount of screen time Michelle Yeoh Angela Bassett Carla Gugino and of course Lena Headey I would say all of them do to a different degrees, right? Like, I mean, dare, dare I say Michelle Yeoh, and I know it's, like, hot to, like, highlight Michelle Yeoh these days because of how, like, how her how many movies, just period, she has been in since, I would say, since Crazy Rich Asians. Um, and, I mean, she was in Star Trek, and she's great in Star Trek as well. Star Trek Discovery, I should say. And while I don't love that series, she is easily the best part about it, right? And I think she's getting her own show now in the Star Trek universe starring her character from that show. And, of course, I mean, you know, if we're talking about action bona fides, I mean, you know, let's not forget that she was, you know, a friggin' Bond girl in Tomorrow Never Dies, which will always be— You know, it's funny, I don't—I think that movie kind of got unfairly crapped on because it followed Goldeneye, but I think on its own, Jonathan Price, the bad guy, the second Pierce Brosnan Bond film— It's not bad, honestly. Like, all things considered, not bad. Uh, Campy, sure, right? And they got progressively campier, but uh, she was easily the best part of that film. Remember that uh, motorcycle scene where she's sitting backwards on the motorcycle shooting people? But anyways, I digress. Uh, When it comes to the action, you believe it when Michelle Yeoh is doing it, and you believe it when Angela Bassett is doing it, and you believe it when Carlo Gugino and certainly Lena Headey is doing it, but I never really believed it when Karen Gillan was doing it. It's funny, maybe because... This movie has some interesting choreography, fight choreography, gunfu as they call it when we were referencing John Wick, right? But I feel like... How I want to put this? Like, the first fight, which was visually really pretty, it was like in a neon bowling alley. And Karen Gillan fights these three... The three stooges, as she refers to. The three boneheads, right? And there's another more interesting fight between the four of them. Like, maybe like 20 to 30 minutes later in the movie. But that first fight... They did Karen Gillan no favors because she moves like she, you know, worked out for about 24 hours and can't, is, you know, is completely stiff. Like she moved like an old woman. It was the strangest thing. And like it, it, it at no point made me think of John Wick, which is strange, right? Because I assume that's the vibe they were going for. I also say like after I watched this movie for about 20 to 25 minutes, I never got John Wick vibes, but maybe like to a degree, like, 90s Quentin Tarantino movies vibes, right? Like, early Quentin Tarantino vibes is what I got from this movie. And funnily enough, while I thought the first 20 minutes of this film were quite poor, dialogue sucked. Dialogue never gets better, I should say. That's easily the worst part of this movie. The dialogue is, like, straight-up cringeworthy. Um, The action does get better, and it almost is like they realized it's like halfway through making it, it's campy and cheesy, and they lean into that. And once they lean into it, it actually isn't bad. It's not bad, certainly, right? But man, it's it can be a little bit of a slog to get through, right? And I think my takeaway from Gunpowder Milkshake is that there's a more interesting story to be told with Lena Hedy, the mother of Samantha, who plays is played by Karen Gillen, who disappears for 15 years. And, you know, so you get to see the flashback, you see her disappearing, and then the movie starts, you know, 15 years later. And all I could think of was there's a more interesting movie with Lena Headey at its helm exploring the relationship between her and her, her estranged friends at the quote-unquote library, which Yo, Bassett, and Gugino run, Right. And I think later on it's straight up said that Lena Headey's character, Scarlet, was also a member of the library and she left abruptly so much, not without so much as a goodbye and they were pissed off at her and then they joined forces to help save Samantha in the end. Whatever, you get it. It's general stuff, right? But it's just, there's a more interesting story being told if the movie focused on her and the librarians instead of boring old sam right that's that i think is the main problem with this movie because the choreography and the action set pieces and so on were kind of sort of interesting to in in the back half even though the movie generally got better like i said but it never fully recovers from that first yeah like 20 25 30 minutes i would say which is unfortunate because i there was some real promise there and ultimately it felt like it was squandered i think i said before on the podcast too uh that I don't like when movies treat viewers like idiots, right? And there's a part in the flashback where Lena Headey's character says something like "Like she's injured. And the the teenage version of Sam looks at her and she goes, you're bleeding. And Lena Headey's character replies and she says, it's all part of the job, right? And then it was something like that. It was either all part of the job or it's been a rough night or something like that, right? And then whatever, that scene ends. It cuts to the present day. Paul Giamatti is now sitting in front of um in front of Karen Gillen and he says, Oh, you're bleeding, and she says, It's all part of the job or, or whatever. Whatever. She says exactly what the mom says. And instead of just like nodding, because it was implied that the two of them knew each other, right? And later on you know that they do know each other, Nathan and Scarlett, Lena Hetty and, and Paul Giamatti, and instead of just like kind of nodding at it because you the viewer literally just saw that scene what like 30 seconds or a minute prior he goes you sound just like your mother and it's like yeah no shit no shit she does because we just saw that people aren't idiots i think i think this movie that was the other part of it like it just it kind of treats you like you're dumb and i and i don't like that right like i don't, again i don't mean to compare it to john wick because this movie is not in no way shape or form comparable to john wick right but it's just you, there are a lot of things left up to the viewer to understand. Let's say in those John Wick movies, and they over-explain so much in this film. I mean, I guess the aspect that you can compare to John Wick is the overarching world they live in, which is to say that it seems like everywhere is like a, there, there's like a understanding that the world they live in is like a hyper-realized, hyper-violent one. Because they went to the diner, you have to check your guns when you eat food at the diner. When you go into the doctor's office, you have to check your guns there. The library, same same deal, right? I kind of thought for a, for a sec there that those are all, like, assassin hangouts. But it turn, I think that's just how the world is. And I guess, to, in, in that sense, that's how you would understand uh, the comparison between John Wick. And similarly, in the second John Wick movie... You know, remember when they go to Rome and he orders, like, food, quote-unquote food from the, uh, what was it, the sommelier, and they get, you know, he's like, oh, you want a, you want some desserts, and then they, like, hand him a shotgun. They do the same kind of thing, and this was in the trailer, right, because you see let, let, let the librarians go and say, you're going to want a Jane Austen, you're going to want a Virginia Woolf, and you're going to want an Agatha Christie, and so on. The problem is, like... The problem with that comparison between the library scenes with the books and, like, the food scenes and the guns is that they never – like, they they do later in the movie, they open these books and you see guns, but there's no, like – there's no connection between like what what makes a Jane Austen gun a Jane Austen gun, right? Like I, I think that would have been a nice touch because for those people who read, like, I've read Jane Austen, I've read Virginia Woolf, I've read Agatha Christie. I'm not trying to like flex on anyone. I don't think, frankly, I don't think it is a flex to say you've read some of the most popular authors on the face of the planet, right? But but I just think that it would have been fun to see what constitutes a gun befitting Jason, Jane Austen, right? Uh, what what constitutes a gun befitting Agatha Christie, and so on, right? They never really make that comparison. They know, like, what befits a gun from Little Women, right? Like, what, what is, the, is the comparison, or what's like the what, what links those two things? They never show you that, and I think that's a huge missed opportunity because that would have been funny, right? And they just kind of like, oh, here's some books. Assume there are guns inside, right? Which I think was, that also kind of bothered me, I would say. The last thing I'll say to you is, this is a super minor thing. Uh, Lena Headey does not lose her English accent at any point in this movie. We know Lena Headey is English. That's like that, the actor, right? Like that. So that she has her normal accent in this film, a posh British British accent. Okay, whatever. Karen Gillan is Scottish, right? I don't think I've ever actually watched a movie where she has her Scottish accent, but presumably she can do it. And presumably, even if she didn't want to do it, she could do an English accent as well, which would make sense. You would think for the character of Samantha being the daughter of. You know, Scarlett, and I mean, sure, maybe the mom wasn't around for 15 years, but wouldn't you think that even as a teenager, this girl would have an English accent? She doesn't. Not even a hint of an English accent. And it's implied, if not straight out stated later in the movie, that her dad, Scarlett's husband, died when, when Sam was a baby. So this girl would have grown up with a mom who has an English accent, so she would have also had an English accent. It just was weird, right? Like, why not make Karen Gillan do an English accent? It just, she clearly can. There's no real explanation for why she's an American. I don't know. It, I know that's a minor nitpick. It just stuck out to me because we know she's not American, right? But anyway, so that's all I'll say. Um, it was a, It was fine, I guess, but, I mean, ultimately speaking... I'm doing this review right after I finish watching it, and I'm already having trouble remembering details, which is never a good sign, right? Uh, it's out on Netflix, it's, so if you have a Netflix subscription, it's, it's very easy to watch, which is how I watched it. So I'll be interested to see if you see it, if you agree with some of the nitpicks, some of the criticisms I had of this movie, um, or if you liked it a little more, or if you liked it even less. I'm interested, let me know. But uh, ultimately speaking, Gunpowder Milkshake is a very forgettable addition to the uh, action movies we have done on the podcast as of late. The next movie on the docket today is Jungle Cruise, right? The latest Disney Plus offering. Again, like I mentioned in the intro, I didn't see this movie um, in theaters. I could have. It is out in theaters. Uh, I think my sister actually went to go see it in theaters. But I saw this in the comfort of my own home. And you know what? I don't really think... You know what? I don't really think it was a, a theater movie, right? Some of The Rock's other movies... Are like quote unquote theater movies. Like I think like the Fast and the Furious movies he is in, plus the Hobbs and Shaw like spinoffs and so on. Those are theater movies, right? Dare I say, Skyscraper is a theater movie, right? Maybe even Rampage was a theater movie. But I something about Jungle Cruise screams watch it on the small screen, and I'm glad I did. But either way, um, let's get it. Let's get into the review for the latest movie from The Rock, a movie that has been sitting on a dusty server somewhere in the Disney vault. Until now, I guess. Jungle Cruise. It's funny, I don't really remember the last time I watched a movie that has The Rock in it. You know, Dwayne Johnson, DJ, who, and I'll, I'll be honest, I like The Rock. Truly, I do. I think The Rock, you know, we always talk about, or you see in, in in media, social media, whatever. It's like, The Rock's movies bring in hundreds of millions of dollars, right? And you watch his movies, and you can see why. Because The Rock has, hmm, how, how will we put this? Like, The Rock has a certain charisma, I think, that not a lot of people have, right? Like, you can teach, I think, a lot of things. And I know this sounds, like, so cliche, but you can't really teach having charisma, right? And I was talking about this with one of my coworkers and uh, my cousin as well, who I saw Jungle Cruise with. And uh, it's simply the idea that wrestling, where, of course, The Rock comes from, you kind of, like, have to be half an actor anyways. And it's interesting to think that, You know, we did the Space Jam review a little while ago, and uh, I I talked about how I actually didn't mind LeBron James. Well, it's funny because The Rock is certainly a better actor than LeBron, but I I dare say most wrestlers have to be good actors for that very reason of wrestling has some innate you know, tie to acting, right? I mean, look at... Even before The Rock, right? John Cena now making his... Uh, not debut, certainly. He's been in movies before. But, like, he's getting more into the mainstream, I guess, right? And he he has much of the same appeal that The Rock has, uh, which is, like, goofy, funny you know he looks like he is carved from a block of granite basically right (laughs) and you look you go back to like their predecessors and i would say it really started with rowdy roddy piper right i guess macho man to a lesser degree as well but roddy piper uh you know he he was in um what was it called they live i have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass And I'm all out of bumper. Yeah, so there's that clip, right, that I'm sure you're all relatively familiar with. At least, if you haven't heard the clip, you've probably at least read it, right? But anyways, it's just interesting because The Rock's movies and Jungle Cruise is among them are so simple, right? Like, none of them are that complicated. And yeah, Jungle Cruise is no different. It's exactly the kind of thing you'd expect. It is an easy, breezy uh, adventure romp. Basically, right? I almost said easy breezy, beautiful cover cover girl for some reason. I don't know why that commercial gets stuck in my head. But, but yeah, like Jungle Cruise basically is one of the most easily digestible, watchable films. And it's funny because I feel like every aspect of this movie is inspired. And I, I've said this with other films too. I feel like every aspect of Jungle Cruise is inspired by a better movie right and it's and that's not to say Jungle Cruise is bad it is fine right it's completely passable and if you're a family you have a couple of young kids and you want to entertain them for an hour or an hour and a half just slightly more than that maybe Jungle Cruise is perfect it is it is like you know we joke about Marvel movies being made from an algorithm. Well, Jungle Cruise was made from an algorithm where at the end they put in like a bracket and some formula, but also add in The Rock and Emily Blunt. That's when and then you get this movie basically, right? I mean, like if you don't know what the plot of this movie is by now, you're, you've probably missed all the millions of trailers that Disney has put out. But essentially, Emily Blunt's character is on, on a hunt to find the the tears of the moon, which is essentially the pet are the petals... Of a tree that I guess like cure any disease or bring people back to life or it's kind of vague on what exactly it does but I think essentially it's a cure all yeah any disease let's go with that right and uh it's funny I, I saw just saw the movie and I, like you already kind of it's kind of forgettable right <laughs> but they but like that doesn't really matter it's like the they're going in search of a magical MacGuffin and when they find the MacGuffin or and on their way to find the MacGuffin crazy things happen right. Uh, It's funny because Jesse Plemons is also in this movie and, you know, one of his more entertaining roles, if a little stiff, right? I mean, it's, again, kind of forgettable. Um, But I said this movie was inspired by better films. I mean, you think of certainly The Mummy, right? Uh, The Brendan Fraser Mummy from 1999 with him and Rachel Weiss. You think of Pirates of the Caribbean. It's impossible not to think of Pirates of the Caribbean because the other big little hook, I guess, for Jungle Cruise is that it's based on a a theme park ride, right? Much like Pirates of the Caribbean was and before it, Haunted Mansion. And it's unfortunate to say that Jungle Cruise is closer to being Haunted Mansion than it is Pirates of the Caribbean. And again, that doesn't mean it's bad. It's just, I think Pirates of the Caribbean, at least the first one, and you know what? I'm, I'm a fan of the second one. And even though the third one is a little bloated, I don't mind it. It's the fourth and fifth ones that are truly bad movies. But the first, let's just stick with the first one, right? That movie somehow captured lightning in a bottle. Maybe it's because Gore Verbinski directed it. Maybe it's because Jerry Bruckheimer was involved, and in a lot of his movies seem to have that verve, right? But when it comes to Jungle Cruise, it's like it, it was like a like it, was, it was like faking being Pirates of the Caribbean, right? Like it had all the same elements, right? Spunky female actress getting getting involved with like the kind of the other character who has seen and done it all right it was and it's funny cuz it almost felt like they were trying to combine the characters of Will and Jack from from Pirates of the Caribbean into the character of the Rock and the only reason that doesn't happen is because in Pirates you at least believe the romantic tension of Will and Elizabeth, gosh, I almost forgot. I was going to say Kate? Will and Kate? That's not right, right? No, uh, so Will and Elizabeth, you believe their romantic tension. Whether or not that's because of the writing, whether or not that's because of the acting Orla- of Orlando Bloom and Karen Knightley, whatever. It comes together, and they really do capture lightning in a bottle because they add that little extra little oomph with uh, Jack Sparrow, of course, right? I mean, hell, uh, Johnny Depp got nominated for an Oscar for playing Jack Sparrow, right? So, it, it, like, there's none of that really here in Jungle Cruise, and I think the largest flaw I could point to credibly, because again, there's nothing really overtly wrong with this movie. The largely, the thing I can largely point to is the fact that I have never seen, and Jungle Cruise is not any different, I have literally never seen a movie where The Rock is the male lead of this movie, where he has romantic tension with the female lead, right? Like, you can go back to literally any movie he has ever been in, and he has never successfully portrayed that. It's like, it always comes across instead as, like, your your big brother and little sister. That's kind of what it comes across as, and it's no different in Jungle Cruise, even though they're clearly trying to sell you on the idea that Emily Blunt, over time, falls in love with him. And I guess, like, as a quick aside, she's fine too, right? Jack Whitehall as the brother, fine too, although I will say that Disney came as close as they probably ever will to straight-up saying that a character is gay. They still talk around it when it comes to the brother, but, even though it's clearly implied, but they don't actually straight-up say it. Um, it's just interesting because, you know, the you would think that with Disney, they they tend to shy away from that stuff, and just we talked about Luca a couple of weeks ago as well, right? But either, either way, yeah, Emily Blunt, fine. Jack Whitehall, fine. Jesse Plemons, fine. But this is the show, this is The Rock's show, right? And again, the romantic stuff with Emily Blunt is, like, they do it and I'm like, oh, gross. Like, you know, not not in the cooties gross way, but in the more I'm like, God, just just go past this and do something else. Because no one, no one buys this, right? Even at the end, nobody buys it. It's just, I gotta say. It, another thing, too, maybe I have just seen too many movies with The Rock. Because, and again, I, I like The Rock. I grew up watching him. As a wrestler, I don't know if I've said this before, maybe I have, but uh, The Rock, I watched him a lot as a young as a young boy because my grandmother, um, God rest her soul, uh, when she was still alive, she loved, this is a woman, like a West Indian woman from Guyana who even when I was young was already like in her like 70s basically, right? Um, she passed away when I was about like 10 or 11 and she was like 82, I want to say. So even when I was younger, she was still like an older woman, right? And uh, as an older woman, she loved her soap operas, and she loved wrestling, and she loved The Rock. So I have a soft spot for uh, Mr. Dwayne Johnson, and I gotta say, I think if she was still alive, she would be like the biggest fan of his movies. Which maybe again, maybe I'm biased that way into <laughs> in towards loving him. But my God, is he like the dialogue he spouts? Is some of the more are some of the more predictable things you'll ever hear. Right? Like there's a part of the movie towards the end where he gets shot a couple of times, and without going into too much detail, he's essentially immortal. And I gotta say it real quick, that was a twist that legitimately caught me caught me off guard. I was like, huh, wow. A, a semi-original <laughs> idea in a movie like Jungle Cruise. Who would have thought? But either way uh she she, Emily Bunch shoots him and he falls and so she shoots him he staggers and then she shoots him again right and then she he falls off a cliff or something whatever he lives you see you see him later on and at the end of it after they kiss she's like you shot me twice and he's like you shot me twice And and she goes well you wouldn't go down the first time all I remember thinking was if like when he when he got shot the second time I turned to my roommate and I said He's going to make a comment about this, right? Like, he's going to comment on this. <laughs> I remember it happened, and we both, we both looked at each other, and we're like, oh, dear Lord, because we knew it was coming, right? And that, I think, kind of sums up the viewing experience of Jungle Cruise. Apart from that one genuinely clever twist with him being immortal, everything in this movie you see coming, and I think that is the largest issue with Jungle Cruise, right? It's predictable. It is safe. Uh, the jokes largely land right but again it's purely because of the sheer charisma that the rock commands himself and apart from that yeah it's like i've already kind of forgotten large like large scenes and and whatever from from, from this movie the cgi also is is like fine at best it's not like that great which is kind of weird to say like you were talking about pirates of the caribbean the 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 cgi on the ghost skeletons from the first one and on davy jones's crew in two and three like a decade plus later looks more realistic than things we see today which i don't know i don't know what that says about hollywood or like ilm the 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 production company or just cgi in general i don't know what that says about that but it is kind of i was it's noticeable in jungle cruise i'll put it that way but not enough to like detract you from your experience or anything like that right like we're talking we're going into like deep nitpicks about a movie that ultimately speaking is for children and i know i've said before like you know that's not an excuse it's not there are plenty of really good movies that are also for children but this movie like is designed to appeal to the grandest denominator right? not even the lowest common denominator because i think that's doing some people a disservice but the the grandest amount of people right because that's how disney makes money these days right and even if it was pooped out by an algorithm, you know, this is the kind of movie that will appeal to a lot of people because it has The Rock, it has Emily Blunt who is who has somehow mastered the art of looking hot but also being a badass, right? And like literally any movie she's ever been in, you know, Edge of Tomorrow or, or, or A Quiet Place or whatever, right? And, uh, and it has some silly comedy sequences and Jesse Plemons does a funny German accent, right? So if that's what you – like if, if all you want to do is sit back and kick up your feet and let your kids watch this movie while you have a couple of chuckles, then that is exactly what you're going to get from Jungle Cruise. And last but not least, a movie that has been a long, long, long time coming. I feel, you know what, actually, I. it's true about The Green Knight that it's been a long time coming, but I guess you could say that about Jungle Cruise, too. And I suppose you could also say that about virtually every movie that was supposed to come out last year that is now coming out this year, right? Like, the, the uh, French Dispatch is coming out later, Dune is coming out later, um, fast nine as well we didn't i didn't really mention that about about fast nine but you could it definitely applies to that one too so i guess I guess that's an unfair statement to just reserve for the green Knight but I, I will say I have been looking forward to the green Knight for a very long time so let's get into my admittedly lengthy review for the green Knight all the purity in your face and all the anger said about I've definitely talked about The Green Knight before on this podcast, but now that I've actually seen it, I can't believe that happened. You know what I mean? Like, you know there are some movies you anticipate so much, then you watch it and you're like, eh, that was fine, right? And like, I largely felt that way about The Rise of Skywalker, for example, right? Like, I spent an entire episode essentially crapping on that movie, and I'm very pleased to say that I had really high hopes for The Green Knight, and they were maybe not surpassed, but they were definitely met at the very least right like maybe maybe they were surpassed but in a way i didn't expect right i think i expected one thing and i got something completely different from david lowry's the green knight right starring dev patel alicia vikander uh joel edgerton right a couple couple other actors here and there but by and large they're they're the three main characters throughout this film dev Dev patel being the one chief and chief in front and center and whatever right first and foremost uh, and I'm very pleased to say that uh, if you want to boil this review down to to one sentence, here it is. It is that The Green Knight is a truly weird movie, but it is, and, and that's not a bad thing, right? But it is a really weird movie, but it is also hmm, offset slightly by the fact that you just get to see Dev Patel in almost every single scene. And in it, he is really hot, and he is really sad, and he's really cool, right? Hot. Sad, cool Dev Patel as Sir. They say in the movie Gawain, um, but I think most people would say Gawain, right? As I think, like maybe that's like a Westernized way of saying it, right? But Gawain, I think, is just like the the heavy like English way of, of saying it because everyone in this movie has an English accent. It's like, "Hello, Sir Gawain," and I, I'm like, I'm kind of like, all right, all right, who cares, right? I'll say, I'll say at the beginning too. I and i am not saying this to brag. I am not absolutely saying this to brag. I'm only saying this because I'll never get a chance to mention it literally anywhere else for the rest of my life. I have a degree in English literature, right? And I, I, can, see, I can see guys, like, you hear that, and you, you roll your eyes. And I'm like, what a pretentious a-hole, right? <laughs> well, it's just truth. I, the, tr- the truth is, if I could go back and change my degree, I probably would. I would change it to something like eminently more useful, which would be to say, I would change it to literally anything else, but I can't go back, I can't, I don't have a time travel device, so I'm stuck with this degree in English literature, and I remember in one of my classes, when I was in university, one of the professors said, look, in 10 to 15 years, unless any of you go into academia, none of you are going to remember any of the stuff in this course, so if I give you enough knowledge to pull out at a dinner party 10 years from now, then I will have done my job. I swear to God, one of my professors said that, and I remember everyone laughed, I think partially because it was funny. It's a funny thing for a professor to say to a bunch of, like, first or second year students. But at the same time, I think he laughed because we all knew he was right, right? (laughs) Right? Like, how many people in that class do you think actually went on to study, like, Shakespeare or King Arthur, right? Probably the answer is very few. And it's funny because... After I saw the Green Knight, which, of course, is based on an Arthurian tale of Sir Gawain, who was a member of the Round Table, right? Like, the Knights of the Round Table. And King Arthur, even though he's never, like, named outright, they never say Merlin or the Round Table or Arthur or Excalibur or Camelot or Guinevere or whatever, right? Uh, You, like, all of that stuff that has been so ingrained in pop culture when it comes to, like, knights and heroism and stuff. Like, it's all, like, I think everyone knows just, like, a little bit enough about it that you can, like, watch The Green Knight and infer, I think, by and large, who all the major characters are, right? Anyway, so uh, it's funny to think that I graduated 10 plus years ago, and it's funny to think that finally, or, you know, I didn't graduate 10 plus years ago. I took that course 10 plus years ago, and it's funny to think that uh, here it is, paying off, in the sense that, I watched this movie and I wasn't that confused. Isn't that hilarious? That is, that is a, an absolutely hilarious reading of this situation. But either way, uh, the, the, the journey in this movie is essentially about Sir Gawain... I guess discovering something about himself, right? Because most of the Arthurian tales and Shakespeare too, and you know a lot of literature from like a hundred plus hundred plus years ago, right, is about like the protagonist learning something about the world or about themselves, about other people, or maybe all of the above, right? So Gawain, who is a young knight in this in this telling, it is slightly different from the from the Arthurian legend, but it is about this young man who is uh, eager for action, eager to take his place amongst the knights of legend. and But he, he's green. He's a, He is a green knight, essentially, right? He does not have uh, any tales of his own to tell yet. And it's unclear whether or not this movie is about his mother trying to... His mother is, I should also mention, Arthur's sister, Morgan Le Fay, and she's a witch. And uh, as you can tell via the beginning of the movie, she summons the Green Knight. It's unclear if she creates him, but uh, she summons the Green Knight to come lay down a challenge to the Knights of the Round Table and to King Arthur, and uh, probably knowing that her son would take up the challenge, right? And the challenge, of course, is if you watch the, if you watch the, not the movie, but the trailer, uh, is that the Green Knight allows whoever takes up the challenge to strike him with one blow with the condition that in a year's time, he gets to return the blow. So, of course, that Gawain chops off his head, being very uh, overzealous, the the uh, zealous zealousness of youth, perhaps, we, we can call it. And uh, he chops off his head, and then, of course, the Green Knight, being a magical being, picks up his head, gives Gawain his magical axe, and disappears and says, in one year, I'm going to chop off your head. And then he, Gawain basically spends the year worrying about this before he goes on a quest to find the knight to, I guess, like, return the favor, basically, or let, let him return the favor. And I will say, it's to the film's credit that... It doesn't really linger on that year, right? Like it doesn't show you what he really like. It literally he wa- he rides away, and after like maybe ten seconds, ten thirty seconds, it shows you just here. What? Here's here, we're a year later. Here we go, and it's it's. I will say that makes the movie really speed along, right? So of course he sets out and uh, with a whole bunch of different items, and he goes to find the knight. And it's interesting, right? Because throughout this whole movie. He hasn't really learned too much at this point, right? Until he sets out upon his quest. Now, in the original t- telling of the Arthurian legend, Gawain is presented with five trials. And, again, it's it's not as though you know of these trials. They don't even really say it that he's being presented with trials in the movie. He just kind of happens along things that happen. And it's funny because he fails every single trial. He fails, like, the... Uh, the trial of like I, I think they all have different names. It's like the fi- trial of charity when someone asks him for asks him for money after giving him help and he refuses basically, or the trial of friendliness where he like beats away a fox and only after the fox comes back does he like relent and give in, right? Or the trial the trial of I don't know what this one was, would have been called, but like doing what's right, I suppose, right? And helping someone out and only when he only when he is chastised for asking what's in it for him does he actually go and do it, right? Like the trial the the trial of uh, I think chastity chastity is one of them, right where he he uh, like covets another man's wife and you know lying was another one, he doesn't he doesn't like uh admit a lie. Like he basically fails all of these uh all of these tests. And it's interesting because you see all of the trials he faces and at the end of or right before he gets to the end of his trial, he meets a woman and uh when he is in Camelot, he meets like Alicia Vikander, I mentioned she's in this movie. She's like the, I I think it's implied she's the prostitute, right? And that he that he sleeps with, and it's funny because the casting decision was that Vikander plays the prostitute, and then when he goes on his quest, he he meets himself, finds himself at like the hall of some baron, like far far away, and the the guy's wife is played by Alicia Vikander as well. So I think it's supposed to illustrate that he like see something of the other woman he is in love with or what how it's easier for him to be in love with this woman or whatever right but anyways um she has a very interesting monologue about the color green right and how the green is is the color of nature and is also the color of someone who is you know green like uh, like i mentioned before new at something but she also talks about how green is the color of corruption right it's the color of greed and uh, he has a belt that protects him from harm that his mother gave him, and then whatever. He loses it. She finds it again, this woman. Again, not really explained how. I think it's kind of just like magic, right? She she finds it via magic, <laughs> and uh, she gives it to him, and he cinches it about his waist, and when he goes to meet the Green Knight, he runs away, right? And when he, The Green Knight's about to return his blow, and uh, he runs away. And it's interesting because when he runs away, the film shows you essentially what would happen when he ran away because he lived the rest of his life wearing this green sash, essentially, right? And uh, I guess it was to imply, like, my reading of of that kind of alternate future because in the end, it turns out he didn't run away and it was just the film was just showing you what would have happened had he ran and not faced his fate. And he becomes corrupted because he, is, he has the green belt, right? So I think that's the message of the movie. It's very well done. You see how like, greed, corruption, just evil cowardice overtakes him. And it eventually leads to his own ruin, the ruin of everyone around him, his children, the kingdom, right? And it eventually ends up in his death. And then it fa- it goes back to the moment where I guess he sees his potential future and he uh, he decides to... Not do that, right? He flings the belt away and then tells the knight to to do it. And I think that the reading of this story, I think, at least for me, again, this is all just my own personal take on this. Is that this entire film is about a man finding his courage, right? And there are other questions to be asked too. Like the movie ends with him. he, He basically says to the knight, "All right, do it. I don't have the belt on. Do it. Cut my head off." And the knight, clearly realizing that Gawain found something within himself just like jokingly taps him on the neck and says, off with your head, and the movie ends immediately, so it left, leaves the ending a little ambiguous, some people think seem to think that the knight does kill him after that, I don't really think so, I think that would defeat the purpose of like this character learning something, right, because that is the whole point in my view of a lot of these Arthurian legends, it's about these knights learning something about themselves, and again, we can make, we can make the argument that the mother summoned the knight or created the knight. At the very beginning of the movie, but uh, you know that's I think is is a decent open to decently open to interpretation, but but ultimately I think it doesn't really matter, right? Because in the end, it's about Gawain finding his courage, right? So, okay, we did a lot of uh, reading and analysis of the plot and the different trials and what it means. I think from a just a sheer movie perspective, this movie is very beautiful. It's pretty, it's moody, it's atmospheric, right? Like, the colors just pop, right? Tons of different shades of green, as, as you might imagine. But virtually at every point, every color you can imagine is represented, right? Like, light, airy colors. Gawain himself wears, like, a I don't really know what it is. It's like a shawl or a cloak or something. He wears it kind of bunched up around his neck and shoulders. And his his shawl cloak thing is like a bright let's say, orange or like an orangey-yellow, something like that. I don't, know what, I don't know what color that would be, but it's a very bright color, and it stands in stark contrast to everything else on the screen, and it's really interesting because you can basically see Gawain, even if you can't see Dev Patel's features, and, of course, he has, like, dark hair, and he's wearing, like, dark chain mail underneath and so on, right? Even if you can't see everything about him, you can see the shawl and how it like interacts with everything and then there's another point where he's still wearing the, he loses the shawl but is walking through a forest and it's a forest of like uh, like the same kind of color and an orangey orangey yellow type thing and it's just the colors just pop so much the visuals and the cinematography in this movie are absolutely gorgeous um, I got to say as well, Dev Patel himself, I love Dev Patel. I'll watch him in virtually anything, <laughs> pretty much anything ever, right? I want His his breakout role, we can probably safely say, was Slumdog Millionaire. But everything he has been in since then, with the exception of Avatar, um, has been great. And even Avatar, it's not bad because of him, right? It's bad because of a whole hell of a lot of other reasons. But Dev Patel, as usual, is great. I will say, he's good like actor who, not everyone can do this. He can, like, convey so much emotion via just his eyes. And there are a lot of, like, close-ups on his face and, like, his maybe, like, his head down to his like, his, like, chest, right? And he conveys so much with his facial expressions and his eyes, even without looking at his body language. It's remarkable. So I think for that reason, I loved watching this movie because you're just, like, en- enraptured by watching Dev Patel at all times, essentially, right? Alicia Vikander, I mentioned before, she... Uh, Vikander? Vikander? Either way, she uh, gives a pretty good performance as well as in the In the dual roles, um very different roles, although I think I liked the uh the baroness's wife, they don't have names. It's hard to describe them right so but I think I liked her role as like the the, the seductive wife who was trying to tempt him, let's say right the temptress as they <laughs> as they say uh, I liked her in that one because it was like it was like a hint of danger and like curiosity mixed in there, and she's so good at it it very much reminded me of her role in ex machina, but like in a more human way you know literally speaking because that character was a robot but but anyways um she was really good and joe laggerton who is um the, the her husband the baron i guess we'll call we'll call him since again he didn't have a name again like he wasn't in the movie a whole lot but they, and they did change a little bit of his character because in the original tale he is the green knight and again maybe there is like a director's cut where he also is the green knight because I i definitely thought they had like a they made his character look similar to the Green Knight. Like, he had different, the same kind of beard, and his clothes were relatively similar. Even, like, just the way his face looked. Like I, th- I feel like they did it on purpose. Um, but they, again, in the way they told the movie, it seemed to imply it was two different characters. But either way, he was also really good in his very limited role as well, because he seemed to exude, like, a knowing menace, right? Even, again, very little role. He probably was in the movie for, like, 10 minutes total, but. Um, he was good too. All the other bit roles were good as well, right? Implying there was a a Merlin available and Guinevere, I mentioned before, everything about the King Arthur legend that you know and love is all implied. They never say Arthur, Camelot, Merlin, whatever, but at the same time, I kind of like it that way, right? Not because it rewards you for knowing a little bit about it already, but just because I've said this before on the podcast, I don't like when movies treat the listener or the well, you as listeners treat the viewers like they're stupid, right? And this movie does not do that. I will say, it's very. It can be slow at times. It can be slow. So if you've made it through uh, this this uh, lengthy review, um, you probably are the kind of person who likes watching these kinds of movies. But ultimately speaking, if you're like, I think this movie will prove to be very divisive, right? I think it'll prove to be. People will view it like I have, and they'll say, "Wow." It was a slow burn, but it was genius. It was moody and atmospheric, and all these things. And some people might say, "Nah, it was a boring snooze fest, right?" And I don't think it really matters if you're familiar with the the, the source material or not. I just think that like some some people just don't like those kinds of movies, right? So if you're not a fan of those, like really, I don't want to sound like I'm going to like bias your answer. Right? If you're not a fan of good, thoughtful movies, you hate this. No, <laughs> it's not what I'm saying. It's more like if you're not a fan of of slow burns, movies that do take time to get to their point, and movies that do like, are slow to develop, then you probably won't like The Green Knight, but if you, if you do have the patience for that kind of thing, right, and if you're, will, or maybe a better way of saying it is, if you're willing to devote your time to that kind of thing, I personally don't think that most people would be disappointed by what you see and what you get in the end, because it really is inventive, it's really creative, and even if they do take a couple, couple of liberties with the source material, I don't think it really matters enough to say that it's, like, it's, notably different right it's it's its own take i can't imagine too many people have have done what i did and read the uh, gawain source material so i think most people will be fine in that respect but i'm very happy almost two years after i was supposed to see this movie probably a tiff i think it was supposed to headline the the south by southwest film festival in texas initially um i'm very glad that it's finally here so if you uh If you're like me and you like Dev Patel, or you like King Arthur, or you just like Slow Burns, I think you should get your butt in a movie theater and watch The Green Knight as soon as possible. That's it from me for movie reviews on this episode of the Showtime Movie Podcast. Thank you so much for listening, as always, people. Uh, It's funny, one thing that I'm only remembering now, I should have mentioned this in the review for Jungle Cruise, but I'm only remembering it now. I didn't mention the music at all, right? And the music was pretty standard, like, instrumental fare. But there was one song that appears in the middle of the movie that is essentially the basis of all of the... the, Maybe not the basis of the score, but it is definitely a large part of, like, the musical themes, specifically for Frank, um, Dwayne Johnson's character. And I was watching this movie, and all I could think of was, man, this song is so familiar. It is so familiar. Why? It's, like, like, really, like, digging at the back of my brain... And I remember I watched through the credits, because I was convinced it was an after-credits scene. There is not, by the way. Uh, but I, I watched through it and only at the end did, it, did I realize when I saw the, the track listing, it was a cover of a Metallica song. And it's funny, because... I like Metallica, Metallica's fine, right, like, I don't, I don't love them, but I do like Metallica, and it's funny, I guess I have listened to enough Metallica to be able to, like, at least vaguely recognize some of their songs, right, so anyways, I thought that was kind of interesting, which is the reason, um, as well, you heard, uh, Metallica to open the Jungle Cruise review, but either way, uh, that is, like I said, that is it for this episode of the Showtime Movie Podcast, and, you know, there are movies coming out between now and the end of August, but I think that is The Green Knight that is uh, is the last movie I will see in theaters until after August 20th. That is the day I'm getting married. So there very well might not be a review until after uh, until after the wedding. I gotta say, I, I actually haven't really thought too much about how I'm going to do the podcast when, you know, my wife is living here. Because she lives with her mom and her brother. And I live by myself, right? Dan, my my roommate, moved in with his girlfriend. Funnily enough, they broke up, so um, he's moving in with a with a different roommate, like a friend of his from school. But I digress. Uh, right now, I'm sitting in what is his, what used to be his old room, and even when he lived here, I used to just do the the episodes in my room, right? And you know, I have the door open. I'm speaking pretty loudly. It's also, like, the middle of the night, right? Like, I, I go to bed pretty late anyways, and I have my my soon-to-be wife, my fiancé, um, she goes to bed, I would say, like, when it, when it is, like, five minutes to midnight, her eyes, like, it's like someone turns a switch off in this woman's brain, and she, like, has to go to sleep. I find it very endearing, but also, as someone who is a complete night owl, I have no idea how I'm going to work in the recordings of this Podcast. I might have to just start doing it at work again. I've started to go back to work, so I might just have to do it in the in the studio and then just cobble it together before I come home, so I don't disturb her. Maybe that's the that's the way to go. But either way, I have a couple of weeks to figure that out. And uh, she put a ban on me from going to the movies, not permanently, but just like until the wedding, just in case there is some kind of like COVID outbreak in some place you go and the contact tracing uh, mandates that you stay home for two weeks or whatever. She's afraid that I'll go to the movies it'll happen, and then, like, it'll it'll screw the wedding, right? Which, you know what, is a fair concern. So I will not be going to see any movies in theaters, at the very least, until after August 20th, but... So it doesn't mean I'll miss uh, Suicide Squad and uh, some a couple other films, I think. But as soon as August 20th passes... I'm going to try and convince her to go see a couple of movies with me in theaters, or at the very least, you know, maybe we can spend a couple extra bucks and watch them at home, but for now, uh, I think we might be, you know, you guys know I only put episodes out once every two weeks anyway, so it very well may work out that we won't get another episode until after the wedding anyway. So, all's well that ends well, maybe, right? But uh, we'll figure that out on the next episode of the Showtime Movie Podcast. Thank you so much for listening to this episode, and until next time, have a great night.